0: Welcome to the SBK Crypto podcast. podcast. 15 minutes of crypto value. My name is Charles Storey. I will be a host the next 15 minutes. Well, oh, scratch that. Tonight's show is going to have a slightly different format. We have a special guest on the show. We have Mabob Moghadan. He's probably one of the most exciting people we've had on the show. One of the most exciting stories. One of the founders of Rap Genius, later known as Genius. One of the co-founders of Everpedia. One of the industry thought leaders and someone on the front line of data protection, data control and decentralization for all. Tonight, we have one of the most exciting interviews we have done. So with that in mind, let's get down to business and let's jump straight into the interview. All right. All right. So on the show with me now is a very special guest. A guest that we're going to go deep, man. We're going to take the mask off. We're going to find out the life story. We're going to find out the journey so far. We have Mabub Mohagdam.
1: How's it going, man? How's it going? Yeah, ma- mask off, you know, as as the as the rapper Future says, Molly Percocet, you know. We need to take the
0: mask off. Take the mask off, man. I love that song, man. But we'll, we'll get to music. I know music is a, a massive passion of yours. And I know yep. that has been a, a massive influence in your life. But listen, dude, let's start from the beginning. Where does your journey begin? Where's the story begin? Um, where were you born? I was
1: born in Los Angeles. I was the only person in my family who was born in America. So I was, I was going to try to be president of the United States, but it didn't really work out that way. <laughs>
0: and where is the rest of your family from from
1: iran they moved here four years before i was born
0: and what was the reason for them moving over was it just a better life
1: no there was political turmoil my family's jewish so most of the jews left iran when the islamic government took over in
0: 1979 and what was it like growing up in los angeles
1: Los Angeles is troubling. One, one problem is it's kind of a city that I find more than any other city is segregated into ethnic ghettos, and there's not a lot of interaction. For example, my family has been here for 35 years, but my uh, mom never properly learned English because they're kind of in their own Iranian Jewish ghetto in the neighborhood that we live in, and they don't really interact with other people. So that's troubling. I went to a public school where you know, it was uh, – the public school I went to, there were no white people. It was like all minorities. But it was cool. It was what, the, the, the thing – I mean high school, it wasn't a good or fancy high school that I went to. But one thing that was good about it, it had a lot of AP classes. AP classes are where you can get like college credit. And that's what motivated me into learning. I had some cool AP teachers who were the ones who got me to start reading for pleasure and to start trying to get good grades and try to get into a good college and things like that. So how
0: did you do? Like, how did you do at school?
1: Pretty well. I mean, I was the only person from my college in in years who had gone to like a, a prestigious university, who went from my high school to a prestigious university.
0: Do you enjoy, did you enjoy kind of working, solving problems? Was that something that you've you've always enjoyed from an early age? Or was that something that was kind of brought to you by your AP teachers?
1: Yeah, I'm not really, you know, I'm not a, really a technical thinker or uh, or too smart. I think what, what I'm really good at is just being charming. I guess with the APs <laughs> it's not a good example because those are a standardized test. So I was at least doing well on those exams, but. At least with college, college is where I started to more play the game. I in college I really really wanted straight A's. So I absolutely would not take a class where I could not be guaranteed to get an A right right from from the start. What college
0: did you go to? I went to Yale. Wow. I mean that's that's a prestigious college. Not many people go into Yale to begin with. So you must have been um you know must have been pretty pretty smart just from the get-go i mean what did you like to do when you were younger or is there anything that you um in- enjoyed to do maybe kind of like mentally stimulating i'm trying to work out how we got to yell because you don't just fall into it
1: um i've been into sports and music really but um never never anything that's too too valuable to humanity you know what i'm what I really have respect for is people who are technical thinkers like sam yeah and and uh Travis and Teddy, like you know uh, engineers, and I've never really been an engineering minded person I've more just been into books and writing
0: and music and fun things like that by the way, I've watched some of your recitals of of Beethoven, and I was blown away by your piano skills. When did you start to learn Thank to play? You.
1: I've been playing since I was fifteen, and I actually just learned uh, the fast movement from Moonlight Sonata. Wow! And I'm just super, super excited about it.
0: I'm, I'm a massive fan. So when I saw you, when I saw you killing it, I was I was surprised. I was shocked because um, when when I started doing a research on you, I, I didn't know what to expect. But I, I was surprised that you were a sophisticated classical music enthusiast and um, an avid player as well.
1: Yeah, it's my passion. It's my passion. It's funny. Um, when Meerkat came out, uh, right as soon as I saw it, I'm like, I want, I want people to watch me play piano. <laughs> so I started to get a bit of a Meerkat following, and then Facebook copied them, and they shut Meerkat down. So every night after work, I do a little recital. It's on my Facebook, Facebook Live. It like it tells everyone. It like. Gives everyone a notification that I'm playing. I think people get annoyed, but I don't care.
0: (laughs) So, and yeah, you mentioned that you picked the classes that you knew you were going to excel in. How did you, how did you pick that? Was it just because you actually had general interest in those classes or was it because you could see prior grades that you had an indication that you were good in those classes?
1: this, This is something I kind of complain, not about Yale, but about the American college system about is that. I did not feel free to try scientific classes. Like, like, I, I was telling you, my, my passion has always been for, uh, technical minded, you know, more, more, uh, left brain thinkers. And I would have loved to be a doctor. You know, my, my dream job to this day is to practice medicine. But I got to college and they told me, yeah, to do, to go to medical school, you're going to have to take Orgo. And if you take Orgo, you might get a D. And if you get a D in Orgo, then you'll never be able to do anything else. So I felt like I didn't have a choice. They were basically telling me like, okay, if you want to keep the law school open option open, then you can't take Orgo and you have to major in one of these majors that everyone gets A's, like history. So I majored in history. And I mean, I, I love history. I became really passionate about it. For a while, I was actually flirting with the idea of getting a PhD and trying to become a history professor. But then reality kicked in,
0: you know. so I, I ended up going to law school after college. So when, when did you want to become a lawyer? When did that come into play? What age were you? Um,
1: it's not like I wanted to become a lawyer. My, so my roommate in college, who was my best friend, he was from a very decorated legal family. His dad had actually been Obama's first boss. Wow. And had been like part of getting Obama's career going. So he's kind of the one, I I took all my cues in life from him. So he told me he's going to law school. He ended up going to Harvard Law. So I decided, well, if he's going, I got to go too. So that was my top choice was Harvard Law, but I didn't get in. So I ended up going to Stanford Law, which ended up being really, really good because that's basically where I fell in love with the internet.
0: So how did the interaction happen with the internet? I mean, you must been using it before then. When did you, when did you really feel like, okay, this, this is something that I not only have an interest in, I really want to dedicate my time and energy to.
1: So some crazy stuff happened. So I, I lived in France for a year after uh, college, I got a Fulbright scholarship. And then as soon as I got, literally the moment I got back from France, I first stopped in New Haven Uh, to hang out with Tom and Alon, the guys I started Rap Genius with. They were still seniors in college. And the first thing they told me when I got to New Haven was, you need to download this new uh, website that we're all using. It's called Facebook. And that's when Facebook was only open to like the Ivy League schools. So I was one of the earliest users on Facebook. And I absolutely just became obsessed with it. I was obsessed. I thought, I thought, you know, this is this is the internet that that finally makes sense. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then Elon, uh, the president of Genius, had a blog where he would write like poetry and comedy pieces and things like that. And he was getting quite a cult following from his blog. So I decided to make kind of like a parody blog, which was it was like a parody of his blog. And that was my first thing of getting into publishing on the internet. I started to think, I, I always wanted to publish. Like I always wanted to get my writing published. And it was the first hint I got that the internet lets you publish anything you want for free. So that was the uh, immediate appeal
0: of the internet for me. And what, what were your writings? Like what, what kind of content were you, were you publishing? Um, uh, poetry,
1: humor pieces, things about law school, things about getting a job at a law firm, uh, <laughs> things that, things that would get you into trouble if your employer read them, you know what I mean?
0: <laughs> so like a modern day kind of diary in a
1: sense. Yeah. I was basically like, want to be James Joyce. I <laughs> wanted to write a <laughs> portrait of the artist as a young attorney or something.
0: And did you pick up much of a following when you were doing that? And by the way, was, was that weekly or was it daily? I mean, how how regularly were these these pieces of content?
1: Um, when something moved me, uh, but people would check. Yeah, we we had a following. We kind of had a cult. Il- Ilan and I. Uh, there was also our friend Liam. He was he was one of the guys who was an early supporter of Rap Genius, but who never got hired. He never got professionally involved. But he also was one of the big blog all-stars. One of the guys in our blog circle actually ended up writing for TV. He's a big, big writer for HBO and Showtime.
0: And were you writing about what was happening in your lives at that time? So you're writing about kind of poetry, life, you know, law school, when your friends were writing about different things? Or how, how did that work?
1: Exactly. No, it was all – well, so the the – The post that got me into trouble, I so I'd written when when I was at this point, I had moved on to working for the law firm. And at the law firm, I wrote a blog post called my final billable memo. And it's like a legal memo called um, most likely candidate for earth inheritance. So it's like, you've asked me to, you've asked me to uh, analyze which, which group is most likely to inherit the earth. And it's like subcategory A, fungus, subcategory B, uh, bacteria, subcategory three is uh, the meek. And all it says is the meek are extremely unlikely
0: to inherit the earth. <laughs> so you, you, you finished law school, you went away to France for a year. So let's go back. What were you doing in France for a year? Were you just hanging out? Like what, what was are you just taking time off? What was going on there?
1: Well, so my proposal was that I wanted to, I, uh, I'd read this book by a French professor named Gilles Capel, and it's called The the Expansion and Decline of Islamism. So I wanted to go and live with Moroccans in the south of France, and kind of, uh, my, my hypothesis was that, uh, so Gilles Capel's big hypothesis is, is that there's a big difference between first and second generation North Africans in France. So he thinks the people who were born in North Africa are not the ones who are attracted to political Islam. It's more the people whose parents were born in North Africa, but they were born in France. Kind of like my situation in America. So he thinks that those are the people who are more likely to become uh, Islamist bombers. And, you know, he's been proven correct a lot like in in 2014 the london attacks Mm -hmm. were discovered they were by people who were from pakistan in origin but they'd actually been born in london so i thought it was an interesting hypothesis and at that point i was still kind of flirting with the idea of getting a phd in history Uh, but then as soon as i got to france i found out that i got accepted to law school so that kind of took the wind out of my sails i ended up just like uh hanging out with french people Smoking cigarettes, <laughs>
0: drinking coffee, drinking wine. And <laughs> um, where, where were you staying? I mean, like, did you did you go over there? Did you have a, like a hotel? Were you staying in a hostel? Were you just kind of hanging out? I
1: was living with real life Arabs. I was doing it. You know, I, I found these Arab roommates. They're actually really cool. They're still my friends.
0: Oh my god, that's hilarious! So you then you flew back, uh, started the blog, and and you got you got accepted into a law firm. Law school. Law school.
1: I went to, yeah, as soon as I got by, I spent uh, a month in New Haven where I got into Facebook. Yeah. I joined Facebook and then I flew back to start uh, law school at Stanford
0: Law. Got it. Cool. So you've, you've now got your blog. You've just done your, your billable hours. What, what happened from there? When did genius come in and well, Rap genius? It was at that time. What, when did that kind of come into the equation? because you're already hanging out with these guys the the other founders and and doing your blog how did how did rap genius come into the mix
1: so my law firm uh was overstaffed and they said that they are willing to give partial salary to associates who go and intern for clients and a lot of people were doing it because they thought if they stay they're going to get laid off right um and uh, I wanted to go to Omaha, Nebraska. The client who I had gotten in touch with and I gotten accepted to an internship was Berkshire Hathaway. Wow. So I was going to move to Omaha and work in the National Indemnity Office, which is actually the office that Warren Buffett sits in. And then the day before I left, my, left for Omaha – I got a call from Warren Buffett's lawyer and she's like, is this your blog? They discovered my blog and they got into, uh, they got very mad about the posts I'd written, especially posts I'd written about the law firm. Uh, They told my employee, employer, everything became a big, big stink. I thought my life was going to be over. Oh my gosh. And then the same day that Warren Buffett discovered my blog was the day that uh, we, the muse came to Tom, and Tom came up with the idea for Rap Genius. So how did,
0: it, how did so, the original idea, like what did it look like? What was the vision? Uh, we were, I was
1: really, really depressed. I just lost my job and found out all kinds of bad news. And we were hanging out, we were listening to a rap song, and then he said, like, you know, th- like for example, th- the line he just said right now, I have no idea what that means, and then I gave him my attempted explanation at the line, uh, which um, uh, unfortunately was me for me. I-, I gave like a incorrect and also racist explanation for the line that he was asking about. That shows you what an Orientalist I am. I don't even know rap music.
0: But. You, you, well, everyone has a view, and that's the beauty about it. It's open to interpretation. So what happened, what happened after that? Did he-
1: But it was Tom's idea. So I told him what this line means, and then suddenly he said, you know, there should be a site for that. And I thought he meant a blog. So I thought, yeah, that would be so cute. We could start a multi-person blog where we, like, give an exegesis of our favorite rap songs. And he's like, no, no, I'm not talking about a blog. I mean, like, a site. It tells you. And, and the site that had inspired him to build it was Stack Overflow. So he was thinking if there's a Q&A site for how do I build computer programs, why isn't there a Q&A site for uh, what do these rap lyrics mean?
0: So, how long did it take to build?
1: He built it overnight, right after I found out uh, the Warren Buffett news that afternoon. And I was super depressed that evening. And then I woke up the next morning. And he'd stayed up all night to build the first version of what we called rapexegesis.com.
0: com. <laughs> and you remember what the first song was?
1: The first song was "Kill a Cam." Kill a Cam by the rapper Cameron.
0: Yeah, I know that song. I know that. So, how when how did it get momentum? Were you guys just spreading it to your own networks, or how did how did this build? How did it, how did the momentum start?
1: Well, at first. Uh, the the community that started it were the people who are blogging, like that the dude Liam I told you about, yeah. another guy uh, Ariel was our friend who also went to law school. So they were basically all of our college buddies who were blogging, and we kind of got them to think this is a new version of blogging. So we had people putting up different stuff. One one of the earliest pieces put on the site was uh, my then girlfriend was a Miltonist. So she started to annotate Paradise Lost. So one of the 10 earliest songs, you know, quote unquote songs on Rap Genius is actually uh, book
0: nine of Milton's Paradise Lost. Wow. (laughs) And what do your parents think when this was going on? Did Did he tell them about the blog?
1: No, no, you know, they didn't understand any of this. Because back then, startups were not the trend they've become now. Like no one really knew what Y Combinator was. Now, right now, I feel like most kids graduating from college have heard of Y Combinator. Back then, only, only like really, really like nerdy programmer people like Tom knew about Y Combinator.
0: (laughs) So, After, after having the site, after starting some songs, when did you feel this was going to be a serious, this could be the next step in your life. This is what you're going to devote your energy to your time to your focus to. When did that become a realization? Because at this stage, it sounds like you just kind of created something cool and you're just adding to it. When was it like, okay, this is real. We can build.
1: I always knew it's going to be the biggest site of all time. And I was the one who was unemployed. So by by dint of my situation, I was the only one out of me and Tom and Alon who was working on the site full time from day one. Uh, Tom and Alon still had jobs. Like Tom was working for a big hedge fund in New York. But uh, the thing that kind of made them realize and gave me a big kick in the ass too was when we got rejected from Y Combinator. We, we, Tom wanted to apply to Y Combinator and he actually wasn't sure if he should apply with Rap Exegesis or if he should apply with one of his other websites. Uh, but he finally decided with Rap Exegesis and we got rejected. And for some reason getting rejected really, really lit a fire under our ass. And then Uh, Justin can of Justin TV fame wrote a blog post about us about how much he likes our site. And I met with him in San Francisco and he told us to apply to Y Combinator again. And he kind of gave me a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like this time I can get you in. So it was the second time that we applied to Y Combinator that we got in. And for us, that was huge. Like back then getting into Y Combinator was like uh, winning the Olympics we we thought we're already set. You <laughs> thought you made it. They didn't take that many companies in our batch. There were thirty companies, and now and now in every batch they take over a hundred companies, which I do not think is good for their brand. I think they should go back to having a more rigorous selection process.
0: Um, what did you learn from go- being in Y Combinator? What kind of what things did you take away?
1: We met everyone important. We met Zuck. We tried to give him a rap genius T-shirt. He said, uh, "Please give it to my assistant." <laughs> uh, we met Ben Horowitz. We asked him what his favorite rap rap lyric was, and he said, uh, "His his response was that it's Rick Ross when he says, uh, who the fuck you Who the fuck you think you fucking with? I'm the fucking boss.'"
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we met Al Gore. Al Gore was one no of way. the guests at Y Combinator. Our batch. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh um ben horowitz gave us 15 million (laughs) dollars so how long did this take to happen from being from being accepted into y combinator to meeting these great people and then getting funding from from ben horowitz well
1: well we met all of them in the course of y combinator once a week a guest comes in to speak to y combinator so one week it was mark zuckerberg one week it was al gore one week it was ben horowitz um and then we were voted most likely to succeed. Our own Y Combinator batch voted uh, our our company the most likely to succeed. And then back then the white whale of investors was Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher had just gotten into investing and he was the first celebrity uh Silicon Valley investor. So everyone wanted Ashton Kutcher's money and he was he was the first person who invested uh after we did YC demo day. He actually, so he had left YC Demo Day before we pitched, which for us was like horrifying. And then uh, he was actually a mentor to a young rapper, a young rapper named Super Creative. And then Ashton says the reason he decided to invest is Super Creative sent him a Rap Genius link while he was talking to his business partner about Rap Genius.
0: Wow. Wow. While this was all happening, you know, what was the website doing? How many, how many songs had been uploaded? How much traction was it hitting? Or was it the hype of the idea and the vision at the time?
1: It was perfect timing right then. You know, uh, eventually we got into trouble for SEO, but we weren't doing anything wrong with SEO. The, the technique we found is we would get uh, college college student music blogs to link to the lyrics for new rap releases when they came out so we kind of figured that that technique and that started to make our search results uh go to the top of google like back then there was there was a website called killerhiphop.com which would was the master at posting new rap lyrics and they had a lot of traffic so we basically started to eat killerhiphop.com's traffic alive <laughs> and that quickly shot us up to like you know top 1000 websites in the u.s
0: so how many how many page views were you getting per day um when we raised from
1: ashton we were at around three to five million uh, monthly pages wow.
0: and can you put like what was facebook getting at that time do you have any kind of clarity or uh, vision on that um I'd
1: say ba- back then so back then we were at like 3 million monthly uniques and Facebook I would guess was at like 500 million monthly uniques. So we were we were a fraction, we were around 1 1% of Facebook's traffic when we started to raise big money. Now we're probably like uh 10% of Facebook's traffic.
0: So what happened internally when when you raised all of this cash? Everything's going great. Did you find it hard to? Did you find it hard to execute with everyone in the room? Did everyone have different ideas and visions of where you're going to take her? Or were you all kind of working together, combined together, all on the same vision, on the same road?
1: Well, the first roadblock we hit was that Tom and Elon wanted the company to be in New York, and I did not want the company to be in New York. I hate New York, and I back then i I had so much pull, and I was so bitchy that I convinced us to get a house in LA. So for the first three and a half years of his, of its existence, rap genius had an office in New York and also had like a mansion in LA where like rappers would come and live and (laughs) we do more community outreach stuff. So what rappers did you have come and living in your house? Chance the rapper, chance the rapper uh, who stayed with us for a long time. And now he's a legend, you know, and he's, uh, so it's funny, uh, the rap genius piano. I remember him playing the rap genius piano, and then when I left the company, I got to lo- I got to keep the piano, and that piano is now at the Everpedia office. So the piano that
0: Chance the Rapper played is now at the Everpedia office. Oh, that's so cool, man! So w- with the community aspect, what were you doing at that stage when you were living in the house and you're having rappers around which is super smart because you're embedding them into your ecosystem? What was your community outreach at that point? What was the strategy?
1: A lot of students would come get involved in the site, you know, try to get people to think of it as an extracurricular activity. We would have summer batches come and stay in the house. Um, I mean, I think, I think a lot of very, very good college essays have been written about working on Genius. We had, we had uh, community members get into top colleges, top grad schools kind of the same ever approach everpedia is using now which is unlike the approach of say wikipedia like wikipedia i feel like there's not really anything in it for a lot of the volunteers so we we tried to make it more like a self-serving thing uh where where there's something in it for the volunteers of course back then there was no there was no crypto my my dream now is obviously to see a decentralized genius
0: i love that but Genius was way more than just a music site. It was an—it was a place where you can express your thoughts, opinions, your views, and your your connotation of what the music really meant.
1: Yeah, well, originally we didn't want to just do music. We changed the name to Genius.com because we also wanted to do literature and religious texts. Wow. But uh, they never took off. They never really got a lot of traffic or a lot of community. So after I left, the site doubled back down on music basically that like the literature and stuff is still there. Hopefully they won't decide to, to get rid of it. But if you go to the front page or anything, the site purports to only be about music now.
0: So at that stage, how many pages did you have up and running? Well, you had the house, where you had ev- everyone coming to hang out. I mean, this seems like the like the kind of the the big days before before everything is huge. It, it really takes off. Like how many how many sites did you have? Or how many pages did you have on your website?
1: The golden age. Uh, there there were millions and millions of pages uh, because also uh genius has always been open i I think i hope it still is today for for amateur artists to put up their own music so a lot of people would just do their do their own stuff it's kind of
0: like a blog
1: in that sense
0: i love that dude so while you're at the house you gotta tell me the best party that you had like you must have had tons of party what was the best one
1: It was right before I had brain surgery. So um, before I had my first brain surgery in 2013, I found out I had a brain tumor. And the symptom of my brain tumor was my left hand was shaking uncontrollably. And it had been shaking like that for months. And I wouldn't go to the doctor because we were just having too much fun throwing parties. And like at the parties, everyone would always be like, yo, why is your hand shaking? And I would tell them that it's carpal tunnel. I I, I thought I had carpal tunnel or something. So that's what we were doing. We were in a, you know, we had a fancy mansion in Bel Air. We were throwing parties. Rappers, rappers would, the deal rappers would make with us is, I'll come on your site and I'll give some explanations, create some content. And in exchange, let me use your mansion to film my next music video. So we kept having famous rappers film their music videos at the Rap Genius house and I was just having so much fun with my brain tumor.
0: <laughs> so what was it like finding that out? I mean, everything's going well in life. You've, you've got a startup. that's a huge success. You've got backing from some of the biggest VCs, your, your trajectory at the minute, is just up. Then you find out that you have a brain tumor. What was going through your mind?
1: Yeah, it was nuts. It was nuts. It, it, it happened, I guess, at a bad time. Um, and I didn't really get a chance to recover. I had to, so I went in for the tumor Finally, fi- uh, oh, so I had, I had an appointment to go in because things were getting really, really bad. And then Tom, the CEO of the company, made me cancel my appointment to go to MHACS with him, the University of Michigan hackathon. So that, that always struck me as something like Tom, maybe, maybe you should have let me go see a doctor. My hand has been shaking uncontrollably. So I got back from MHACS, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, I have to get brain surgery in 24 hours because they thought the tumor could explode. Um, yeah, and it was, it was nice. At least I didn't have much time to think about it. I had to do the brain surgery immediately. And then I didn't really get much time to recover afterwards too. Like So many exciting things were going on. About three weeks after my brain surgery, I had to fly to San Francisco to attend Kanye West's engagement party. And like, you know, we got to be on TV and everything like for, for anyone else, it would be their dream. But at the time I was kind of horrified. Like I had to do all these voyages and all this stuff. And I, I still didn't feel recovered from, from the brain surgery.
0: So how are you dealing with everything? I can't, I haven't had brain surgery, so I cannot relate what was going through your mind. What was the current situation? Talk me through that.
1: I didn't really know what was going on and I was, I was really, really scared, um, but it, I guess it was exciting, you know. Th- at the time, it was three weeks later. I felt like I felt like I don't want to go. I really didn't want to go to California, but they're telling me it's Kanye West's engagement party, so I felt like I have to go.
0: So I take you didn't have a good time.
1: Um, no, I had a horror. I, it was it was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying. You can see me on on the episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and half of my head is just like swollen. Uh, like half of my head is twice as big as the other as the other half so i just look kind of like a lopsided freak
0: i'm sure you look like an absolute hero making it no matter what um so what happened with genius because you ended up leaving the company
1: yeah i got into too much trouble you know i think i'm i'm someone who's good Nothing changed about my behavior. I was always making a lot of noise, trying to get things to go viral on Twitter. But then once we raised uh, $50 million and got like the billionaire investors involved, uh, they weren't as into it. So it was my time. I got, I got into trouble for a few things that were made headlines. But also in the long term, I was just rubbing too many people the wrong way. The employees of the company i never i never connected with with the staff the way that i did with everpedia i felt a bit more alienated by them part, partly because of the new york
0: versus la thing as well so after leaving genius and being on such a fun trajectory everything's going right i imagine it was it was quite it was the dark days after you left. So what, what was going through your mind? What was Yeah, I just wanted to life retire.
1: Life? I definitely was not looking for anything else to do. And at the time, I felt really, really sick. Like now, fast forward now, I, I got brain surgery two months ago. So fast forward now, I know the reason why I felt sick back then is because I still had a brain tumor. Like the, the job had not been done. But I still felt nauseous. I still felt shaky. So I really wasn't looking for anything else uh, to get involved with, but when I saw Everpedia, I I just knew I knew, and it was crazy timing because I had just gotten offered money by a friend who is a VC to see me get involved in something else, and like right when I gotten that offer, I met Sam and uh, heard about Everpedia, and I was just like.
0: So I've seen the video where you're speaking at UCL and where you first meet Sam and he gets up to speak and you're blown away by the idea of Everpedia, and you're like, listen, sign me up, let's do this. It'd be great to share your insights to that story.
1: Yeah, well, the the initial thing I told him, the first time I met him, I told him, listen, you're going to raise money, no problem. As soon as you raise money, please hire me because this is the most amazing site. This is what I want to work on. And then it was like, a week after I met him that uh, my friend at Mucker Capital said, hey, we want to fund you to start a new company. If you have any suggestions, uh, let us know. So I just thought it was crazy timing. So I contacted Sam. I'm like, hey, I've got investors for you. Uh, Also, I had started using the site. I'd started making pages for my friends and stuff. So we were able to raise money from Mucker and that's uh Sam allowed me to join
0: as a co-founder. I heard that one of the reasons you wanted to start Everpedia was because your Wikipedia page kept on being deleted. And Everpedia itself gave you the platform to build your Everpedia page and well, your Wikipedia page upon. Yeah, well I
1: remember I so I didn't know about deletionism. So I remember in twenty thirteen, like right when all the brain surgery stuff happened, I was I was in the news a lot for my brain surgery. So in 2013, someone made my Wikipedia and I got so excited. I thought like, you know, I've made it. I've made it in life. And then Wikipedia deleted it. And I just remember thinking I was so upset. And that's why I had the eureka moment when Sam showed me Everpedia. I was like... It's not just me. If, if I had this happen to me and I wanted the Wikipedia so badly, then there's probably millions of people who are in the same boat that I am. So in your view, in your
0: words, why is Everpedia such a game
1: changer? So many things, so many things. But uh, one, one of the immediate needs is there's a huge black market of people who illegally pay for edits on Wikipedia. So, like, this is the big, dark, dirty secret of all PR and marketing agencies is that everyone is breaking the rules. They're breaking the law and they are paying editors illegally to edit Wikipedia pages. A lot of times the editors will be located in India. A lot of times the edits they make won't even be ex- accepted. So, you know, it's, it's borderline scam. A lot of it just turns into scams. And there should not be this weirdo multi-billion dollar market. Like there's got to be a more, more rational solution to this. So like for example, one, one, one service that Everpedia used to have, it's, it's now going to change with the decentralization, but it was called Everpedia Plus, where a client would give us $400 and we would make a detailed Everpedia page about their company or, or you know, about whatever they're trying to promote. And like they could just make their own Everpedia for free, but if they want the professionals to do it, they pay us $400. So why is decentralization
0: so key? Well, for
1: example, with the, the paid pages I'm making, what with the tokens, what's going to happen is that anyone can give bounties for pages to be made. So you're no longer going to have to go through Everpedia Inc. What you're going to do is just use our IQ tokens and say like, Hey, I want someone to make a page about my business. I'm putting a $1,000 bounty for someone to make a top, top-notch top page about my business. So tokens are going to make these kinds of intra-community transactions possible, which could be massive.
0: It's also censorship resistant, which is huge. It's the first time this has been possible. There's no central point yeah. of control.
1: Everpedia got banned in China two weeks ago. We finally we've arrived. You know, we made it, and we have so many token holders, so many community members in China. And then uh, we can turn on IPFS. We can we can switch to the IPFS and make it so that it's impossible for China to
0: ban. Us. And that's key because the people of China need to know what's happening in the world. They don't need censored information. They need uncensored real value.
1: It's exciting stuff. We're about we're about to start doing like you know. So we are the first blockchain site. Uh, built on a platform that has traction. The only other blockchain site that has traction is Steemit, but then Steemit is on its own chain. So it's not going to be able to scale. So we are the first scalable blockchain site with traction. So, so many exciting things are going to happen. It's like the birth of the internet. We're the first decentralized crypto site that people are actually using. So I think that's going to be massive. And then the team we have in charge of this uh it's uh Sam, Travis, Kadar, Theodore. They are the best developers in the world. And that's why I think this is going to be the next Facebook. I think that we are gonna be able to use our team to build to, to rebuild the decentralized internet.
0: And as you just said, you guys are really building out adoption. And you're getting to the point of mass adoption through building a great network, <laughs> through building a great community that is the Everpedia community exactly. that's always building, that's always growing. And you guys are nurturing it in such a great way. And that's how sustainability has occurred. And that's what we need more projects to do.
1: Exactly. And with the, net, the networking effects that come through with decentralization, having this traction is even more important than it was in the pre-crypto internet. So we have this traction. I think we're going to totally dominate. This was my motto after my recent... So I, I got I got my second brain wow. surgery two months ago. And as soon as I woke up from, from the brain surgery, my motto to the team was trillion dollar company. Uh, we are going to be the next trillion dollar company of the internet because we are going to build the entire decentralized consumer internet. And then now everyone on the team uh, makes fun of me for saying trillion-dollar company. It's kind of like become the slogan of the company to make fun of MathBud. But once we are a trillion-dollar company, I'm going to laugh in all of their faces, and they're going to have to kiss my ass.
0: Well, at that point, I don't think they'll mind about that. But how are you feeling after your second surgery?
1: I feel amazing. Well, I, I feel like this time they actually got the job done. The, the first time I felt all sick and, uh, and crippled because the tumor was still there. They'd kind of done an emergency job, but they had not been able to get the whole thing. So this time I still have not had the follow MRI, but I can feel it. I can feel it. The reason why I know it's going to be a trillion dollar company is because for for the first time since since I've been born, my brain is clear. And my piano playing has gotten much better. I've gotten much, much, uh, I'm able to, to exercise a lot more in the gym. It's just completely changed my life.
0: You're back like never before. The mind is clear. The vision is clear. So break it down for me, man. What does the future look like for Everpedia? What are you excited about? What are you jacked about? What gets you up in the morning? Let's get it.
1: It's not just going to be Everpedia. The future is not going to be Everpedia. It's going to be the IQ token. It's going to be building this family of sites, kind of like they wanted to do with Steemit, but with Steam it didn't work. But there's going to be a family of sites that use the IQ token. We want this to be the official token of the consumer internet. And it's built on EOS, which is the fastest platform. It's the platform that's designed for the consumer internet. So we want to build all of the sites that need to be on EOS.
0: I love to hear that. So on a personal note, Mahboud, like, what do you want to achieve? What are your goals? What, would, what do you want to see happening in the next couple of years? Not just for Everpedia, but also for yourself. So for me
1: Everpedia begins at home. Like the reason why I'm so happy about Everpedia is because I wanted my page. So I kind of want everyone to feel the way I felt. So like um for my for my brain surgery uh this this time around, the one I got 2 months ago. I actually had the best brain surgeon in in Los Angeles. He's you know, he's he's famous. He's the best. And he doesn't have a Wikipedia. Uh, so I showed him my Everpedia and I showed him how much I was blasting it on uh, on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. And he just got so excited. He was so into it. And I remember after after the surgery, I really wanted to go home from the hospital soon. Like I hate hospital food. So I kept begging, begging him to send me home from the hospital soon. And finally, he said, okay, I'm going to send you home from the hospital day early, but you got to make me one promise. You got to promise me that my Everpedia is going to have thousands of views by the end of this year. <laughs> so I just got so excited that he was passionate about it. You know, I'm like, so l- last year, my dad passed away. You know, my dad, I'm a I'm the youngest kid in the family. So I had an old dad. He finally I'm passed so away last that. year. And the thing I did with my mom, yeah, I mean, but uh, so so the thing I did with my mom, which really really made her uh, change her whole perspective on the thing, was is we made my dad's everpedia together, and I went through all of these old papers, all these old files. We put screenshots of all of them so that we can put them on his page, and I was thinking to myself, my grandchildren, you know, my great grandchildren are going to be reading about my dad on Everpedia. This is basically going to be his h- historical watermark. He's never going to be forgotten because I've I've written the entire story of his life on Everpedia. So that's what Everpedia means to me. Like for example, whenever whenever anyone tells me like, "Hey, I just lost a grandparent or something." I don't want to sound like I don't want to sound like I'm trying to benefit from their misery or whatever, but I'm like, make, make, make the Everpedia. Like that's one thing, like I, I need this, you know, I need, I need the kids, my, my ancestors to be able to know about my dad and to know everything that went on in his life. And now they can do it because they can read his Everpedia. So I was a history major, you know, so that's, that's what Everpedia really matters about to me is that it gives, uh, the historical perspective to, to, it can it can give the historical perspective to everyone who's living on the planet, not just Napoleon and George Washington.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that, man. And what does what does Everpedia stand for?
1: It was Sam's creation. It stands for everything encyclopedia. It's supposed to refer to Everpedia's uh, universal rabbit hole. Like there's so there's Wikipedia, right? And then there's all of these wannabe Wikipedia sites, like. The Wikipedia for startups, for example, is Crunchbase. Crunchbase has every startup's encyclopedia written. But the reason why those are not as good as having one unified encyclopedia is because you want everything to be able to link to something else. Um, it's it's what uh, Wikipedia users call the rabbit hole. Like you start on uh, you start on the Wikipedia page for um, you know uh, Mark Zuckerberg. And then it's like, Mark Zuckerberg went to Harvard, and then you click on the Harvard page, and it tells you the whole history of Harvard University. So that's the rabbit hole. And with Everpedia, we can make a much, much bigger rabbit hole. We can make pages for everything that exists. So on a page, everything will be blue. Everything will link, will interconnect to other articles, and we can... Kind of uh, we're we're trying to create the internet representation of reality. Like the way that in reality all everything is connected, all matter is connected. We want to do the same thing on the internet.
0: How we're we looking, man, where we're gonna see that come through.
1: Yeah, it has to be all blue. It has to so for example, we'll make a page for SVK crypto, right? And then on SVK crypto, it'll have the team members written on the page, but the team members will still be black. So then we tell the community, we need to go and make we need to make this page more blue. So then everyone goes and makes pages for everyone on the SVK team.
0: I love that, man.
1: So that's kind of a representation of how Everpedia works. We want to make the rabbit hole bigger and bigger. We're trying to just get some massive rabbits to come out of these holes
0: <laughs> i love that you guys did a phenomenal job on my everpedia page however it's not as good as yours It was as pretty detailed my friend i've got a slightly cut down uh version i'm sure the community are gonna help me out what i hope they do anyway
1: let's join let's join and we'll get you verified also at everpedia we have for celebrities we can get the verified
0: accounts Oh, I don't know if I would uh, qualify for being a celebrity, but that sounds great, dude. So listen, when are we going to see you in London town? When's that going to be? My dream,
1: my dream. It's my favorite city. I love the accents. And it's so cool that it's becoming the crypto central of Europe.
0: Massively so. The projects, the energy, the enthusiasm, the focus, the minds put together. You'd feel right at home. You'd feel right at home with the crazies and the ones that make it happen. This is the place to be.
1: Yeah, I think the, the so the big the big hotspots in Europe are uh, the other ones are Malta, Ibiza, and then London. So all places that I would love to visit. I don't get invited to give too many talks. Like I'm, I'm so uh, honored that you're uh, doing this podcast with me, but. These days, I'm not the big celebrity on our team. Uh, one of our executives is the founder of Wikipedia, Larry Sanger. And he's like the guy who built the internet. You know, he's, he's, he's the guy who inspired me to build both of my sites. So it's, it's a dream. He's a living legend. And I work with him now. So obviously, when people are inviting um, Everpedia to give talks, Normally, they invite Larry to give the keynote. But
0: well, we love all you guys and everyone is welcome. But by the way, what is the story? How did Larry join the project? I'd love to hear that.
1: Larry is the man. So Larry, uh, in an interview in 2013, he said some very nice things about Rap Genius. And I was just so excited that the founder of Wikipedia is complimenting my site, that I got in touch with him and he answered. He responded to my email. So we became really good friends starting from there. And he was always close with uh Mucker, the, the VC that funded us, who um I, I was also a mentor for. So we always kind of ran in the same circles and we told him about Everpedia right when we joined, like uh right right when we launched. Uh we asked him to join. And at the time he was working on his own company, uh, which was also he 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 wanted to build a Wikipedia for news. Then when we got uh into the blockchain stuff, we decided to build Crypto Wikipedia. We told him about that and he was obsessed with blockchain. He's like one of the guys from the original internet who understands the promise of blockchain. You know, it's like him, Steve Wozniak, they're like the big big dudes of the old guard who know what's going on. So that is what made him finally decide to join. And he became our chief information officer. It's been huge you know he's massive influence on the team really really proud of our product so uh it's an honor we're working with a living legend we've got some some very very young geniuses and some very experienced geniuses on our team and then i'm kind of i'm i'm in the middle you know i'm like i'm i'm mama bear like not, not too big, not too, not too little.
0: You're an OG of the game. You're up there with the best and you know it.
1: <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. Someday, someday I want, I want to live up to him. You know, Larry's big passion. So, so my passion is classical music. Larry's passion is Irish jigs. He plays the fiddle. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Listen, man, well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You've absolutely crushed it. You're welcome on to the 15 minutes of crypto fame podcast anytime. Uh, there's an open invitation to yourself and all the Everypedia crew, man. We're fans of you all. And thank you for hosting us recently at your office in Santa Monica. We had a really, really good time. So listen, thank you so much for your valuable insights and time and your story. Most importantly, I've enjoyed every second of it.
1: It is a pleasure, Charles. Really, really happy you decided to have
0: me. Anytime. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate your time and insight. And thank you, the listener, for listening in today. And remember, as always, to hit us up on our socials, Telegram, SVK Crowd. Um, Hit us up on Twitter, at SVK underscore crypto. And if you have any questions or queries, feel free to email myself, cstory, C-S-T-O-R-R-Y, at svkcrypto.com. That's a wrap, and i got to bounce. Listening to an SVK Crypto Podcast original. Follow us on Twitter at svk underscore crypto. Email us on CSTori at svkcrypto.com. leave us a message on our website www.svkcrypto.com.